From Brooklyn, New York, I'm Adam Teeter. From Jersey City, I'm Erica Ducey. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. And guys, it's a uh, another another week of COVID. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, not for our guest. Spoiler warning. I know. Yeah, seriously, that's true. seriously, he's they, 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 the the only country that's really done it really well. Um, <laughs> which is probably why none of us will get to go there anytime soon. Because uh, um, we're all like basically infected, even if we're not. If if you're from America, I think it's just like assumed that you have COVID. Um, I think so. <laughs> so, what are you guys drinking this week? So this week I uh, got a hold of a bottle of Plantation Rum. It was their uh, 20th anniversary rum, and I made an old-fashioned with it. And oh, goodness, so good. Rum old-fashioned is my favorite. That's like your thing. It's your thing. I know. It's 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 my thing. And now that we're moving into a little bit colder days, like that's all I can really think about having. I've been going between... Bourbon and rye old fashions and rum old fashions, depending on the day. So I want to tell you, Eric, I want to commend you right now because that's not what I thought you were going to say. Oh, really? I thought you were going to humble brag a little bit about that whiskey you drank this weekend. Oh, This past totally. weekend that you let us know about the edit- in the editorial meeting, and I got super yes. jealous. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, do you want to tell yeah. us what that was anyways? Oh, yeah. It was uh, the Yamazaki 18, and that's <laughs> a really hard bottle to find. There's not many of those around. So that was incredible. Where I did mean, you the have finish, that? Uh, so I had it upstate at a friend's house. And wow. the finish on that whiskey is it just goes on for many many minutes and it is the most pleasurable whiskey i have ever had yeah i mean you talked about it in the editorial meeting and i was like man this sounds ridiculous yeah uh so i was i was pretty jealous but no I, yeah i wanted you to talk about it anyways exactly <laughs> Yeah, well, thanks, thanks, Erica, for not leading with the incredibly delicious, incredibly impossible to find uh, <laughs> single malt. Uh, so I, I this last week was drinking. Uh, I've been on a, a real Alsatian white wine kick. Uh, I taught a class on Alsace last week, and so um, especially Alsace Pinot Gris, which to me is a category of white wine that I love, um, in part from uh, from being kind of exposed to it by visiting there a couple years ago, and really like is to me like a quintessential fall wine because it's a sort. Of, they're often a little bit richer and style, um, not oaked, but the just the Pinot Gris as a variety is like essentially as red grapes that we make into white wine. So it has a little bit of that kind of savory, earthy character to it um, inherently, even when it's vinified white. And uh, in particular, I think probably the Zine Dumbrecht, uh Pinot Gris that I had a couple nights ago, uh, which which is one of the top producers in Alsace and uh, makes a lot of different wines. But the, just their, their sort of, it's hard to say entry level, but their, but their sort of basic Alsatian uh, Pinot Gris is really delicious. And um, yeah, that's kind of where I've been. Amazing. So for me, I had this really cool, uh, cool drink. So on Sunday, um, since it was a long weekend, we went out to Governor's Island. And um, for those who are not familiar with what Governor's Island is, it's this, it's an old military base in the New York Harbor uh, on an island, obviously, that's been turned into a public park and you um, take a ferry to get there. And now it's actually really nice because thanks to COVID, actually, uh, they're restricting how many people can be on the island at the same time. So you, you know, you make reservations online and then you're on a ferry that instead of being like packed to the gills with people is actually very nicely spread out and you get to the island, you have lots of space, you can rent bikes, you can do other things. And um, while it's technically illegal, we did, we did bring some alcohol 
with us. You're supposed to only buy it from vendors on the island, but we did bring some. And, and one of the things we brought, which I thought was really delicious, uh, and I have to give credit to Aaron Goldfarb, one of our uh, writers for introducing it to me, is Lowball. This it's this uh, cider made by Shaxbury. And what's amazing Ooh. about this this Lowball is they have figured out how to use cider and make it taste like whiskey. Huh. And so they've created a highball in a can that is cider based. So they, they age the, the cider in um, whiskey barrels for like, they, they don't say how long I'm assuming it must, it has to be longer than, you know, two or three months, but they age the cider and then they bottle it, carbonate it, and they add lemon to it. Uh, and a lot of the other quintessential like whiskey highball flavors. Uh, and it's just absolutely delicious. Amazing. Um, it's like four, you know, it's five and a half percent alcohol, right? So it's like the perfect level of alcohol for, you know, walking around, you know, a, a large park basically, um, and, and just hanging out and very refreshing, really delicious. I was, I, I was very impressed by it. Um, and definitely plan to keep it on hand in the future. Cause it's just, it's really, really good. Ooh, so that's what I've been that. drinking. It reminds me, I wrote it. I wrote a piece for Vampire a few months ago on cocktail beers, um, where the same same basic idea of of kind of how do you transmit these kind of classic cocktail flavors through through beer. Um, and I think someone I talked to talked about doing some things with cider too. Um, didn't I don't think it made it to the final cut of the piece, but uh, but it's definitely interesting to see just how much you know how deceptively uh, yeah whiskey like or rum like or tequila like you can make a, a a beer or a cider um just through things like yeah you know the the aging vessel and then yeah a little bit of creative adjunct uh, ingredients but yeah it's, it's it's definitely nice to have that flavor without all the booze absolutely <laughs> well so let, let's get into today's topic because i'm really excited to uh to go to, to have this discussion today. So today's podcast actually is being sponsored by uh, New Zealand Wine, and we are really lucky to have as a guest to talk all things New Zealand Wine with us this week, Clive Jones, uh, Nautilus Estate winemaker and general manager. Uh, Clive, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. It's great to be here. So I have a, a you know, most important question for you right off the bat when it comes to New Zealand. Um, where do you all get your same sense of humor from? <laughs> We're, we're known to be well balanced, and we've got chips on both shoulders. Um, <laughs> yeah, look, we we are a, a, a reasonably friendly bunch, I guess, and um, you know we, we 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 take what we do seriously, but we don't take don't take ourselves seriously, and uh, perhaps that's where that kind of Kiwi sense of humour comes from. Yeah, I mean, I have to thank you for giving me my my favourite television show. Uh, so far in COVID quarantine, uh, what we do in the shadows, which is just amazing, <laughs> just an amazing show. So yes, I I, lo- I love the the New Zealand humor. It's absolutely amazing. But really, seen, let's get. Have it. you seen the uh, the the movie? Because yes, I've seen the movie as well, which is amazing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the movie's amazing, and now it's even funnier to me because they're in Staten Island as opposed to being in Auckland. But uh, it is a a really hilarious hilarious show. But in all seriousness, so it, it's really exciting to, to talk to you about New Zealand. Obviously, you know, I'm, I'm assuming most people who listen to the podcast are familiar with New Zealand wines, maybe some more than others. Erica, you have traveled to New Zealand twice. Mm-hmm. Um, I know a big fan of the wines. I'd love if you could just give us a little bit of an overview of sort of what makes New Zealand so special when it comes to wine and why more people should have it on their radar in terms of a, a wine growing region if they don't already. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, New Zealand's a long, skinny country down the bottom of the South Pacific, so you're never very far away from the sea, uh, even central Otago, which is 
our sort of most inland wine region, you're still only sort of two, two and a half hours drive from the sea. So, you know, we've, we've always got this moderating influence from the ocean. So we're definitely cool climate, um, you know, even, even in the warmer parts of New Zealand, we're definitely classified as cool climate. And um, we always sort of get this vibrant, refreshing style to our wines. Um, you know, most known for our white wines and, and Sauvignon Blanc particularly has, has become, you know, uh, we produce such a distinctive style that it, it really, um, you know, has taken the world by storm. But we also make, um, you know, other aromatic wines, um, Pinot Gris, uh, more recently Alberino, uh, Riesling, Gewürztraminer, uh, and our Chardonnay is uh, probably our best kept secret. Uh, Chardonnay is one grape that grows actually throughout New Zealand. Um, and again, you know, we, 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 with Chardonnay, we can produce really nice complex wine, but they have that hallmark freshness. And, and it's that freshness that gets you back to the, to the second glass. And then on the, in the red wines, um, really Pinot Noir is, is the major focus in the South Island of New Zealand and the, and the bottom to the North Island. Uh, and as you get a little bit warmer up towards the middle of the North Island and up a bit further north, then we, um, you know, you can grow Syrah and Cabernet and Merlot. So, the, so, you know, New Zealand's always been obviously a really great wine growing region, but you did mention one wine that we have to talk about, which is Sauvignon Blanc. And I feel like it's now just become standard for Americans to expect that if they want a Sauvignon Blanc, it should come from New Zealand and more specifically from Marlboro. What is it that's made this wine, you think, so attractive to us, um, you know, that Americans are just so obsessed with it? And how has that impacted, you know, wine in New Zealand across the board? I mean, obviously, I'm assuming it helped a lot of people grow their wine businesses, um, but what else has that done for for New Zealand wine as a whole? Yeah, look, I'm I'm still completely amazed at when um, you know when I used to travel around the world and do uh, particularly consumer facing trade shows, where you know you'll get someone if they haven't tried a glass of New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc before, you you, you give them a glass and say try this, and their first reaction is wow. Um, you know, we get this, and, and, and particularly in Marlborough, Sauvignon Blanc has just got this real natural home. Uh, it's it's the climate, it's the soils, um, you know, the variety just just sings in this particular region, and you know we do get quite distinctive characters that that you know, they've got that vibrancy, they've got quite powerful fruit flavours. So for some people, they can actually be a little bit confronting in a way, but um, you know they're so refreshing and, and and just delicious at the end of the day, which is the most important thing for wine, I believe. Um, so yeah, it, it has taken the world by storm. Um, you know, I think a couple of years ago, about twenty-eight percent of Sauvignon Blanc sales in the US were from New Zealand, which is which is quite remarkable. Um, you know, given the, the size and scale of our our industry, uh, could well be more than that by now. So let's talk a little bit about um, sustainability and and grape growing in New Zealand because I'm fascinated by this. Um, you know. But I know that sustainability is a huge focus, I think, probably for New Zealand as a country as a whole, not just the wine industry. But can you talk a little bit about kind of how how that manifests in the winemaking or in the end grape growing and, and maybe why it's maybe more prevalent in New Zealand than, say, other parts of the world? Yeah, well, we made that call early on, I guess. So our um, sustainability program was initiated in 1997. So it's been going over 20 years now. And 
And the focus was at the start on, um, you know, water use, uh, waste streams, testing diseases. So it's, it's kind of, you know, monitor, measure, reduce, repeat. So really, um, you know, monitoring your inputs and outputs and making sure you're doing it in, a, in the most sustainable way possible. And so we set up the certification Sustainable Wine Growing New Zealand and um, we got a really good take up from the industry to the point where we're now at about 96% of our vineyards are certified sustainable through sustainable wine growing and, um, and there's another 7% that are operating under other sustainability programs, say organics or biodynamics or, um, you know, there's a little bit of overlap there because some people take both certifications. But in more recent years, um, I guess we kind of look to broaden the scope of our sustainability program. And, you know, we've, we've reviewed it and kind of checked how it lines up with the um, United Nations Sustainability Goals. And so we've intru- introduced, um, you know, other, other aspects like climate change, people and, and soil, along with our sort of waste, pest, disease and water. And that's that sort of relates to that, you know, three three-pronged approach to sustainability about, um, you know, you've also got to have economic sustainability and you've also, you know, got to have social sustainability as well too. You've got to look after the people. So the system has always evolved um, and, you know, we, we were world-leading, um, certainly, and, 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 and particularly with the, the high level of take-up of sustainability within New Zealand wine growers. Um, and... You know, but we, we can't we can't rest on our laurels. It's a, we've got to keep keep evolving and making sure that we're doing the right thing for sure. And can you talk through? So you mentioned that there's a couple of different aspects of um, what those focus points are. But can you just go through what uh, I think there was um, six focus points that I saw um, and talk through what each of those are? Sure. So um, so pest and disease. So that that's um, you know monitoring any um, fungicide use and, you know, any, anything you have to use on the vineyards to control any pest and disease. Um, you know, there's powdery mildew, there's botrytis that, uh, um, you know, that can affect grapevines. So we need to, we need to be able to, to, to monitor them, um, you know, mitigate those, those effects. So that's, that's the sort of your spray program. But, you know, it's all about doing it um, reactively, not um, not based on the calendar. So, you know, you've really got to justify anything you, you, you put onto the vineyard. Um, water uh, is, you know, we, most of our vines in New Zealand are irrigated and um, and that's driven partly for the fact, you know, again, I see we're a long, long skinny country down the bottom of the South Pacific. One of our, our big secrets is it's, it's windy. And Erica, you may have experienced a, um, mm-hmm. a hot more wester when you were here. I'm not sure when you were here, what time of the year, but... Um, the when the wind gets up, it really sucks the moisture out of the soils. And we've got a lot of vineyards planted on old riverbeds, so very stony soils. So um, we we do irrigate, but you know we've got quite sophisticated monitoring systems in the vineyard. So we're you know we're continually challenging how much water we use and um, and looking at reducing our usage. Um, waste is any sort of waste stream um, that we're generating throughout our, our the process of wine growing, um, so it can relate to composting all our grape mark, all the skins. Um, you know, it's, it's quite common practice in making, you know, producing a compost, which then goes back on the vineyards. Um, 
climate change, uh, you know, becoming more and more um, topical. And, you know, we are starting to see in New Zealand probably a bit that manifesting itself a bit more in variability of weather rather than necessarily getting hotter. Um, I mean, yes, we have had some warmer seasons, but, um, you know, I did a vintage in Burgundy in 2004, and um, this year I noticed that, you know, and I, I travelled there just before harvest. Um, this year I noticed that company I worked for had finished harvest before I had effect the, the date I left the country last time. So in, in, you know, 14, 15 years, the harvest has come forward almost a month. Uh, in New Zealand, we're not seeing any, anywhere like that. You know, we may be you know, up to a week earlier in a warm season, but we are seeing a bit more variability. So, you know, we could get more frosts. Um, we could get more rain in, in, in during the harvest period. So we're sort of starting to think about how, you know, what we can do to mitigate that, both from a practice point of view in the vineyards, but also, you know, reducing our, our carbon footprint. So we're, you know, lessening any impact we have on climate change. Um, so, and, and, you know, we've got a, a goal of being net zero emissions by 2050, uh, which is being led by the government. The government has set that as a, as a goal for uh, New Zealand as a country. And in the wine industry, we've said, yep, yeah, we were aboard with that. We want to front foot that. We want to make sure we're, we're ahead of the game in terms of achieving that. Um, soil, obviously, soil's really important and, you know, a lot more... Uh, understanding on on the below ground um, part of the grapevine, and you know how important that is. You know, we, we um, uh, James Milton, who's a, a, a well known winemaker in, uh, in in New Zealand, he's he's actually biodynamic, but he he says um, you're not standing on on the roof of you know on the on the, the earth. He's actually standing on the rooftop of another kingdom. And you know, that below ground um, kingdom and, and all its microbiological activity and things is so important. Um, and then maintaining the health of the soil as well as the health of the plant that you know you can see above the ground. Um, and also people, you know, we, we've we've got social responsibility. Um, you know, we need to look after the people that are, are working in our, our vineyards and wineries. Um, we rely on. Uh, seasonal labour that comes in from the islands. So we have a, um, you know, a, a, a government-sponsored scheme that um, facilitates people coming in from the islands to work a season in the vineyards. Um, you know, they, they come in, they work for a three or four-month period. Uh, they work very hard, you know, they, and they're, they're great workers, and then they go home to their, um, you know, it may be uh, Tonga or Vanuatu, one of the Pacific Islands, um, they'll go back there into their community and you know, take a cash injection, which then helps them in their lifestyle at home. So that's sort of a quick overview of those six elements. And, and this, you know, those are the elements we've decided to focus on as an industry, for sure. Yeah, it's it's so interesting. You know, I uh, was in in uh, central Otago in January before the pandemic, and it was fascinating to me to see over the span of 10 years just how much the wines have changed. And uh, this article that we'll be publishing uh, this week, uh, I'll, I'm looking at the Pinot Noirs of central Otago and how 
vine age and winemaker know-how over that period has really created a revolution for the Pinot Noirs. So, you know, 10 years ago, the wines were what some people called fruit bombs. They were much more fruity and bright. And now uh, through this um, confluence of both the winemaker know-how, the the older vines have become these incredible world-class wines um, with just so much complexity, um, beautiful structure, you know. So I am working on this piece and um, have been thinking a lot about uh, the evolution of Pien- of um, not just Pinot Noir, but all of New Zealand's wines over the past 10 years and wanted to ask you, uh, how have the wines of Marlborough and the Sauvignon Blancs in particular changed during that span? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, every, you know, that's the unique thing about this wine game, I guess you only do get one chance a year to make wine. Um, and, you know, every year is different, so every year you learn something, so you're able to apply those learnings back onto, you know, whatever you experience in the future. Um, and certainly Sauvignon has evolved. Uh, probably it was sort of more on the green grassy spectrum when it first took the world by storm back in the late 80s. Uh, you know, as we, we work on our canopy management and understand the, you know, one of the distinctive characters about Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc is uh, a set of aromas that are uh, called volatile thiols. And we discovered how to measure those. uh, And there's three volatile, three three chemical compounds with rather long names. Uh, But they give basically the passion fruit, passion fruit skin, and the sort of the the boxwood type characters. And we've measured them and, and, and now know that they are, particularly responsible for that distinctive Marlborough character. Um, and, of course, once we measure them, it's like, well, if a lot of things with wine, um, you know, if, if this much is good, well, is more better. And so there was a sort of swing to the really grapefruit-driven, punchy wines that kind of leapt out of the glass. Um, but they all they went too far. You know, they, they were almost overpowering. And uh, you got almost this, like, sweaty character coming out of them. Uh, and but we also found out that those those compounds are relatively unstable, so they're very very important. But you can't rely on them themselves. So you want a mix of flavors and aromas. And and a lot of the wines you see from from Marlborough for Sauvignon Blanc are in fact regional blends because that's what we we're trying to assemble all of those different flavor options and and putting them together in a blend. You know, and the whole concept of blending is, is one plus one plus one doesn't equal three, it equals four. So you get this synergistic effect and, you know, the different components working together to make, you know, a wine that's at, at the end of the day, you know, more, more balanced and more pleasurable. But, uh, and certainly, you know, with this, the same for Pinot Noir in Marlborough, um, you know, we've gone through this 20-year um, period of, of having the right vines and the right clones on the right sites and, um, so much of our wine is coming from, or structure of the wine is coming from the fruit. Whereas in the early days, you know, you had, you did have those fruit bombs that were sort of propped up by some nice oak character. Um, the oak typically these days is falling into the background, and we're getting, you know, much more of the structure in the, coming from um, from the fruit itself. So yeah, and vine age plays has played a huge part in that. Clive, I, I want to ask a very, I think a very straightforward, but to me, it's like one of the questions that comes up the most with New Zealand, which is, why does everyone there use screw caps? 
Well, I mean, it comes back to that, uh, you know, we make these fresh, fruity, vibrant wines. And, and for us, um, a screw cap is, at, at the moment, the, the most appropriate closure that gives, you know, it, it preserves those, um, those lovely fresh aromatics. Um, and, you know, it, it was driven from the fact that we, we used to think all the, all the rubbish corks were sent down to the bottom of the South Pacific. <laughs> uh, we did have massive problems with cork tank, which is, you know, just ruins wine. Um, uh, the cork industry's done a lot of work since then to, to prove that. But, uh, you know, the wines under screw cap do age. Um, they, they evolve. They just, they, they evolve probably a little bit slower, but uh, they do evolve and but they evolve consistently. So you can open um, a dozen bottles of a 10-year-old wine and they'll all taste the same. Whereas if you're opening a dozen bottles of 10-year-old wine and a cork, you're much more likely to get some variations. And it's convenient too. I mean, you don't have to rush around and find a corkscrew. You can just whip the top off and, and you're away. So, um, yeah, uh, we're, we're, we're sold on screw caps at the moment. And is that also now, Clive, is that mandated or is that just an agreement that everyone's doing it? No, it's it's just there's, there's no regulation at all. It's just that's the way uh, people feel is the is the best closure for our wine sales. Wow, how how large is the New Zealand wine industry? Uh, we've got uh, just under forty thousand hectares. So what's that? About hundred thousand acres. Um, so we are very small. Um, just trying to think. I haven't got a direct comparison to that, but you know. <laughs> We're a drop in the ocean compared to California um, right. as a state by itself, you know. So I think we make somewhere between 1% and 2% of the world's wine. So, wow. Um, but we do make more than we can drink ourselves because only, we're only a population of 5 million. So uh, that's why we, um, we do send quite a lot of it overseas and, and look for people to help us out consuming it. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, obviously, you know, in the early days when, when you started thinking about sustainability, it wasn't as much on the forefront of, um, you know, consumers' minds, but I, now it very much is, you know, amongst our readers, et cetera. How have you seen that change in terms of the, con- the consumers that you're interacting with? Was it, you know, 20 years ago when you guys were talking about sustainability, did you find that you had to sort of explain more to consumers what you were doing and why? And is it now a lot easier for them to understand why you would do this and sort of actually value it and be willing to pay more for it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, you know, we have the sustainable certification on the, uh, you know, uh, logo on the, on the back of our bottles. It's, it's part of every conversation I have with, um, you know, with, with wine buyers or with the consumers directly, if we, we we're in that situation. So, um, you know, it, it is, it is important. And look, we, um, in New Zealand, it's, it's a, you know, we've, We've got had a, an awakening of our um, the, the Maori culture, the indigenous people of New Zealand, and and they actually have a really strong um, philosophy on sustainability as well too. So they have a couple of concepts. Um, one one which is called Tūranga Wai Wai. So that's our equivalent of the Tewa, if you like. Um, oh wow. Another another word beginning with T that perhaps is difficult to explain, but you're sort of the broad translation is you know your Tūranga Waiwai is, is a place where you stand, it's a place where you feel empowered and connected, and it's a foundation, you know, it's your place in the world, and that makes so much sense from a wine growing point of view. You know, I'm standing in this vineyard making wines from this piece of soil, and um, you know you feel really connected to it, and and that relates, um, Erica, I think, into you know how much progression you've seen in the wines in the last ten years, where that real 
much deeper understanding of sight and, and how it influences our particular lifestyles. And the other, the other concept of, uh, that is, uh, the Indigenous people of Māori use is um, kaitiatik tanga, and that's, that's about guardianship and protection. So, you know, and that, again, sits really nicely with um, sustainability in terms of, you know, the wine industry. And it's a, you know, it's a, you're managing the environment where the people are closely connected to the land and nature. And, you know, the simplest way of putting it is, is they say, you know, you don't, you don't inherit the land from your parents, you borrow it from your children. So, wow, you yeah. know, it's, it's about making sure that, you know, in fact, we're doing, um, you know, it's not about preservation as well. We're also starting to improve it and restore. And, you know, you're starting to hear restorative ag- agriculture is a, you know, a bit of a new buzzword where, um, no, we're not, we, it's not, not just about maintaining the current situation. It's like, actually, I think we can, what we want to make it better. Um, so, you know, we're, again, front-footing it, being ahead of the game for the future. I mean, I was going to say, I think that was one of the things that really came across to me when I was in New Zealand uh, earlier this year is just this commitment to both stewardship of the land and the transparency of the terroir and really looking at the site specificity, looking at the specific vineyards and what is the message that they are trying to convey. You know, as I visited, you know, a dozen different vineyards and talked with all the winemakers, I think I've never been to a wine region where literally every single person I talked to was on board with the idea of this continuous improvement of this forward thinking idea of, you know, passing, passing along a better place. Like it was just such a unifying experience that I have, haven't found in any other uh, wine region or frankly, any other country that I've traveled to um, where literally there's an entire community that is thinking and committed to moving forward in pretty much this almost the exact same direction. You know, some people are doing biodynamics, some people are doing organics, some people are doing the um, other sustainability uh, programming, but it's, it's really a a unified, unifying um, characteristic of the the winemaking community. Yeah. Look, we, we are a cooperative um, community of, of winemakers. We, we help each other out. Um, we, you know, we share our knowledge. We, we understand uh, when we're travelling overseas, often the first conversation we have is about New Zealand. Um, thankfully, more people know where we actually are now uh, since the Lord of the Rings came out, I think, movies came out. Mm-hmm. But, um, but, yeah, it's a conversation about New Zealand. It's a conversation about region and you know, perhaps variety, and, and often the conversation about your brand is, is, you know, well down the track in terms of, of, of what we're talking about. So, you know, we do, we do have this community feeling and, and you know, absolutely, you know, we, we, the, the industry's grown tremendously, um, um, but still relatively young. And I guess probably in the, in the last 10 to 12 years, there has been the opportunity just to perhaps you know, not focus so much on growth, but understanding of, you know, the resources that we've got and, and, and how to get the best out of the vineyards and also how to, you know, protect and preserve them. So there's a there's a little bit of maturity coming into the industry from that point of view. And also, and also I think, 
you know, if I think back 20 years, uh, particularly with Pinot, for instance, um, we would be we'd be going, you know, if, let's look at some Pinots. Let's look at a lineup of Burgundy at, and, and and say, well, you know, how close are we? Are we are we making wines like this yet? And now we're we're actually going, you know, we we absolutely respect and aspire to the wines of Burgundy, but we're not trying to make wines like Burgundy. We're trying to make the best New Zealand Pinots that we can. And we're much more sort of confident in, um, you know, our sights and our style. And, you know, so it's more about celebrating what we're doing, um, but still respecting the, the, the history and the, you know, of the old world, but we're much more self-confident in, in what we're doing ourselves. We're not trying to make Burgundy. We're trying to make the best New Zealand pinots that we can. That's really awesome. Well, Clive, I want to thank you so much for, for joining uh, Erica, Zach, and myself to talk a little bit about New Zealand wine. It's been really interesting to, um, you know, to get your perspective and to, to learn a lot about sustainability and uh, you know, just what the country is doing as a whole. Thank you. Pleasure. And, and hopefully, uh, Adam and Zach, you might get to come down and visit sometime. <laughs> I hope so, too. Possibly you again, Erica. But... Yeah. Yeah, we'll, have to, we'll take the, the uh, podcast on the road to New Zealand. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Road trip. Road trip. Totally. <laughs> So guys, I mean, so Erica, I need to hear from you now that, uh, now that, you know, we've, we've heard from Clive, like, so you've been twice, right? Uh-huh. I mean, what's it like? I mean, I've obviously always seen it in Lord of the Rings and things like that, but I've never, you know, I've only seen the ma- amazing pictures of New Zealand and I can only imagine what it actually is like to be there and then to also sort of see what the vineyards look like. But I'd love if you could sort of tell us what your impression was when you went and, and why so many people are, are so enamored by it. Yeah. I mean, for me, I mean, New Zealand was really the place that changed, it changed my life from a perspective of uh, falling in love with wine. So I had been to many wine regions before as a travel guidebook editor, as a travel writer. And when I went to New Zealand, uh, the wines and the wine community, the collaborative nature of the people, and just frankly, the incredible beauty of the place, it just struck me so viscerally that I, you know, at by the end of this trip that I was on, you know, a couple weeks in uh, all over the um, North Island and the South Island, and then ending up in Central Otago. By the time I left, I said, you know what, I think I want to go into wine. Um, so it had a huge impact on me, and that was a decade. Oh wow, ago. that's amazing! And I mean, it really is one of the most gorgeous places that you could ever travel to. The people are um, have the incredible sense of humor that you mentioned, yeah. <laughs> but are just so cool and easy to talk to. And there's this, uh, this uh, no tall poppies kind of idea. Do you, have you heard this expression? No. Um, so what it is, is like um, that people don't want to stand out and talk about themselves. And so like, like Clive was saying, uh, people don't want to talk about their brands. They don't want to talk about their individual 
winemaking and to shine a light on the amazing things that they're doing. Like they actually have a hard time, the winemakers coming over to the States and talking about how great their brands are because they're, that's just not part of the culture. And right. so to, as a journalist, to try to pull out the information about, you know, the very cool things that they're doing, all of the trials that they're doing, all of the um, amazing experiments and, uh, and their individual vision is very difficult, but uh, these winemakers are among the most humble people that um, I have ever encountered in wine. And it makes it, um, it feels like an underdog situation where, you know, as a journalist, I just want to do my part and tell the stories of the incredible wine that's being made. This place that does not get the level of attention that it should. Um, and, you know, from my perspective, how the Pinot Noirs have, in, have evolved over time, I think they're frankly some of the most exciting wines that are on the market today. The article that I have uh, coming out, uh, it'll be, you know, a couple days after our podcast launches, is really talking about how the wines have evolved over the past decade and what makes them among the most exciting in the world. So I'll leave a couple spoilers. You know, I won't totally spoil, <laughs> spoil the entire piece. But um, I really have been, I think it's been one of the most pleasurable experiences in my career to watch the evolution of the wines from this country really get to the level where they can compete among the world's best. That's awesome. And I think what's cool about New Zealand, and, and Clive mentioned this as well, and it's an important point for not just New Zealand, but for I think for a lot of other uh, younger wine industries, is getting to that point where you are confident enough in the wines you make, in the the quality of your of your fruit, of your terroir, and of your winemaking, uh, you know, people that you can say, hey, we're going to make the best possible wine we can, and we're not trying to make something that tastes as much like Burgundy or Sancerre or whatever you know European wine. Uh, people might be most familiar with made from this variety or these varieties. And I think New Zealand's a great example of that. I think there are some other ones that we're seeing as well from, from other parts of the world where, where, where winemakers and wine regions have sort of said, you know, we, we are confident that we can make an amazing, delicious, interesting, complex, um, world-class wine that is its own thing. And it, and it has slightly different flavors and it has slightly different aromas than what you might be familiar with, but it's as legitimate an expression of these varieties as the place where they might've originated or might've first become famous. And, and that is, I'm sure, something that you you feel, Erica, and, and it's something that I, as just as a, not, not someone who's traveled there, but has tasted plenty of New Zealand wines over the last decade plus, uh, have, have noticed as well. And, and again, it's, it's just super exciting. I mean, I think it's a really good point. I think like the biggest thing, right, that you should just be asking, you know, consumers is, is it delicious? And if it's delicious and it's enjoyable, then why does someone else have to say, oh, and it's also so Burgundian in style? Right. Like that, that shouldn't matter. It should just matter that the wine is really, really good. Um, and so, yeah, I, I love that answer too, Zach. And I thought it was, I'm glad you brought it up. I thought, you know, the way that they talked about that was really interesting. And I do think it is really amazing. And we have a lot to learn from this country in the way that the entire country has really embraced this idea of protecting the environment. And I know a lot of it does have to do with the fact that it's such a gorgeous, you know, place they want to, they want to protect themselves. But, you know, I, I wanted to ask Clive, and I was like, "Well, I don't want to get political here, but like, how do how what have they done in New Zealand that really has you know forced the entire population to believe in all of this and to really realize that it's something that's so vitally you know important? And how how what can we learn as you know members of the you know citizens of the U.S. and take back from what they've done and say you know here's here's what New Zealand is doing and here's why it's it's just important here and here's how we get get you to believe in it as well." 
Well, I, I mean, <laughs> you could you could look at some other things that they've done in New Zealand in the last say seven or eight months better than us, and totally. maybe get a get a sense for I don't know maybe just like science being a thing that's taken seriously there seems like a seems like a starting point. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, look. I mean, they do have a pretty amazing leader. I mean, she's pretty awesome. So yeah. I do think, you know, they, they, they do sort of, you know, just understand that you, you need, when, when you need to listen to experts, you listen to experts. <laughs> you know, you don't, you don't make, you don't t- say that you're the expert when you're not. <laughs> so well, we're going to 100%. Yeah. yeah. 100%. But anyways, guys, this was great. And I, I you know, I want to thank again, Clive for joining us and to, uh, you know, New Zealand wines for supporting the podcast. It's really uh, amazing. This was a really great excuse to talk about a wine region. I know Erica really loves that. You know, I need to learn more about um, Zach. I know you're appreciative as well. Um, so yeah, thanks guys. It's a great conversation as always. I'll see you next week. Thank you. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you enjoy listening to us every week, please leave us a review or rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and hosted by Zach Jabal, Erica Ducey, and me, Adam Teeter. Our engineer is Nick Patry and Keith Beavers. I'd also like to give a special shout out to my Vine Pair co-founder, Josh Mallon, and the rest of the Vine Pair team for their support. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again right here next week.